Good morning. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 37? I believe it is today's psalm in the daily Bible reading. Um, or maybe it was yesterday's. I can't remember. It's one of these days. But Psalm 37, and while you're turning there, I want to read again something from that Isaiah passage to keep in mind. In Isaiah 40, verse 28, it said, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, just in case you weren't sure, he neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases their strength. That is an echo, or that teaching, that truth, and that promise is echoed in Psalm 37, which we're going to look at uh, today. It's a long psalm, so I'm going to try to go as quick as I can, uh, but I want you to pick up on several things that I think will be helpful to you uh, this coming week and as you continue to seek to honor the Lord in your life. So several weeks ago, um, when we started the book of Psalms in the daily Bible reading, um, we looked at Psalm 1 and 2 as the introduction to the book. And within Psalm 1 and 2, we are given a couple of tools to use to understand everything that follows in the rest of the book. In Psalm 1, we learn that God is interested in faithful obedience and that that is very important and central to the life of his servants. So when you read any of the Psalms from then on out, you should be looking for commands to obey. And then in Psalm 2, the Lord told us that he has good reasons for why we should obey, and he's more than willing to share those reasons. So we're also supposed to look for promises to trust, reasons why we can obey what the Lord asks of us to do. So keep those two questions in mind. As we look at Psalm 37, look for the commands to obey, to be faithful in, and you won't go very far without finding many, many reasons why you can trust that obeying those commands would be worthwhile in your life. So that's the pre-introduction. Here's the introduction introduction. Psalm 37 is a reflection by David near the end of his life. In uh, verse 25, it says this, I have been young, now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He, that's God, is ever merciful and lends. And his descendants, that's the righteous, the descendants of the righteous, are blessed. In verse 35, he says this, I have seen throughout all these years the wicked in great power, spreading himself out like a native green tree. Yet the wicked passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. David is sharing with us a reflection on his life, the experiences he's been through, the ups and downs of following the Lord, the times he's been faithful, and the times he's been unfaithful. 
and he wants to share with us some wisdom. I kind of think this is a counseling chapter, how David would counsel the people of God to understand the world around them and understand how to thrive in a world that is cursed by sin and full of evil. He wants to pass on a perspective-altering truth that we as the people of God oftentimes forget and need to remind ourselves about. If you look at verse 37, he makes this strong conclusion. He says this, Mark the blameless man and observe the upright. So look at the righteous. Look at the one who's faithful to God. The future of that man is peace. Peace is guaranteed to the faithful servant of God. But the transgressors, the wicked that he says later, shall be destroyed together, and their future shall be cut off. And when you see shall be cut off, um, you're going to want to start to think of plants. Plants show up a little bit in this psalm. The idea of a righteous man being like a tree was prevalent in Psalm 1. That doesn't go away. It's often found in the psalms that um, we are to be, we are compared to plants. And so when it says the wicked shall be cut off, they are like a dead branch on a tree that must be cast off. If you want your tree to continue to go strong and healthy, you get rid of the dead things on it. And that's what it's like to be the wicked. So he makes this bold claim. But if you just look around in whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever era of humanity, history you find yourself in, you'll probably notice that often at the expense of the righteous people, the wicked enjoy victory. That it is usually more prosperous, it seems to be more beneficial to not follow God. Instead, it seems more beneficial to follow your own self and whatever it would take to get ahead. And so I think David, in the rest of this psalm, is going to start to break that down because he sees that same thing as well. Verse 12 says, The wicked plot against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The wicked, in verse 14, he goes on, the wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. In verse 21, he says, the wicked borrow and does not repay, but the righteous show mercy and give. And obviously in that scenario, if you borrow and don't repay, you are gaining something more than you deserve. And to follow God means you often give things away. So by the world's standards and by the standards of the wicked, it seems like following God is the worst choice because you are losing out. In verse 32, he says, The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The faithful servants of God are often on the mind of the wicked, and the wicked are looking for ways to do away with them. And I don't think it's any stretch if you and I look around our world and also see similar things where it often seems better to follow the wicked than it is to be righteous to the Lord. 
And after a lifetime of experiences, David understands that this is how things look. But he also says this at the end of Psalm 37. In verse 39, he says, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. The Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. It's pretty clear there. There's that word trust, so there's a promise to believe, to trust. The rest of this psalm is how David knows that this is true, that when the righteous come to the end of their own strength, which, let's be honest, compared to the wicked, oftentimes our strength seems never enough. It never seems like good will outweigh or beat out evil in any grand, meaningful sort of way. And I think what David's pointing out here is that the faster we come to the realization that we as God's faithful can only do so much and we realize that God has to do the rest, the better off we'll be. God's strength is the strength that overcomes in the time of trouble. It's never my own strength. It can't get me where I need to be. My own strength can never deliver me from the wicked. Only God's strength can. I can never save myself. As righteous as I could be, as faithful to the Lord as I could be, it would never be enough. And what I have to do is what David, I think, says here at the end is trust in God. But the rest of this psalm, the bulk of this psalm, are commands to obey and reasons to trust that those commands can affect good in this world today and will be investments and down payments in the world to come. And that's why I think this is a counseling psalm. David is going to counsel us how we can live until the Lord's final salvation and deliverance comes, until it's his strength that finally wins the day because he promises here and in Isaiah and in Revelation and in many other places in his word, he promises that he will win. But how can I know that that's true in the moment when it feels like God is nowhere near? When it feels like the wicked enjoy all the power? When it feels like there's nothing that can be done? Well, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time trying to quickly look at. There are seven commands to obey within this chapter, and I kind of um, grouped them together into three different groupings to try to go quick because you know me. Uh, so we're going to look at those quickly. And um, every time that there's, an, there's a command, there's either right before or right after plenty of reasons to trust why obeying the Lord in that way, being faithful to God, why that is beneficial. And not just beneficial to our own souls, but beneficial to the world around us. Because even though evil is strong, 
And even though oftentimes the righteous don't experience massive victories according to the world's standards, everything you do in faithful obedience to God matters. It matters to God, and he uses it in the place that you're in. And David's going to point that out to us. So, let's get into this a little bit. We're going to be jumping around. We already have done that, but we're going to be jumping around a little bit here. The first command that I want to look at, and in the first set of groupings here of commands that I want to look at, is this command to wait. You'll notice that there is a lot of future tense verbs in Psalm 37. The Lord will deliver you. The Lord will save you. His strength will give you victory. So there's a lot of looking towards the future. And in that, we have to learn how to wait. In uh, verse 7, uh, three times, three, three times uh, David talks about waiting. In, in verse 7 is one time. Um, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Again, in verse 9, the second half of verse 9, he says, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. And then in verse 34, he says it again, wait on the Lord and keep his way. Uh, to wait here means to expect something to come, even though you might not be experiencing it right in this moment. Expect something to come, even though you might not be experiencing it in this moment. The Lord promises deliverance and salvation, and you might wake up tomorrow and feel like you're not being delivered or saved in your present circumstances, but David says to wait on the Lord. Because, if you look back at those verses, in verse 34 he said, wait on the Lord and keep his ways. Here's the promise. He shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. You're going to understand one day. We're going to understand one day. The faithful servants of God will understand in the day when the wicked are finally cut off and evil is destroyed and there is no more sorrow or suffering, then we're going to say, oh, now I understand why I can wait. Because there's coming a day when the righteous will experience the ultimate victory over evil. And not just experience the victory, they will be exalted in that. The Lord will look and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I imagine that we will be laid low when God compliments us that way. Uh, back in verse 9, the second half, it says, But those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. And in verse 10, here's the promise, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. The wicked are going to have their time, but there's coming a time when they don't get a say in anything anymore because they simply don't exist. Indeed, you will look carefully for the place of the wicked and you cannot even find it. You won't be able to find a hint of evil in the world anymore. But the meek shall inherit the earth. So we need to learn how to wait, expecting something to come, expecting the deliverance and the victory of God to come, even in the moment if we are not experiencing it. But this is not a passive type of waiting. It's not just sitting back and expecting. It is expecting through action. The next command to obey is in verse 27, where it says, Depart from evil and do good and dwell 
forevermore. Depart from evil and do good. Depart means to turn away from evil and turn towards good. The faithful servants of God still have to deal with the sin and the evil within our own hearts, within our own minds. And so it's our job to continually turn from the evil that is attractive to us and focus on good. We don't have time. It's a whole other sermon to define what good could mean here. I'll let you draw the conclusions that you have learned through the study of the scriptures, but to turn towards good means to turn towards doing what the Lord would have you do. And this is an eternal promise. If you do this, you will dwell or live forever. And uh, I, it sounds like this is going to be a lifetime's worth of work, just knowing myself, a lifetime's worth of work. So as I wait, I have work to do. The second, uh, the, or sorry, the third thing to obey and the second part of waiting actively is in verse 5, where it says, commit. Commit your way to the Lord. That means pledge your life's direction to the will of God. Your trajectory of your life, the path you're taking, what you choose to do, how you choose to speak and think and interact how you choose to speak truth and love, how you choose to serve God. The trajectory of your life, pledge it towards God. It's similar to turning from evil and turning towards good. If your life's trajectory is away from the Lord, then you have an obligation, a command, to turn it back the way God would have it go. If you commit your way to the Lord, here's the promise, then you also need to trust in Him and he will bring, he shall bring it to pass. The Lord will aid you, will help you live for him. Uh, how amazing is that? That God asks us to obey him, and he does a lot of the hard work to make it possible for us to even do that. To me, that says how important it is to him, how gracious and merciful he is. And here's what's amazing, and here's how I know, and here's how David would tell you why this matters now, today, and we're not just to be looking towards some future end goal, but we're also to be uh, deeply concerned about the present, is what he says in verse 6. After he says, turn your life's trajectory to God, when you do that, that means when you are faithful to him, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. In John chapter 1 we are told that the world is lost in darkness. Sin has, has caused this world to be dark. People are lost in darkness. And Jesus is the what? He's the word and the light that comes in to illuminate the truth. And there's similar language going on here for the faithful servant of God. If you are faithful, if you are righteous, God will use your light let me say it this way. God will use his light that you are practicing, the light of his truth. He will use it to illuminate those around you and your justice as the noonday. Justice, that word, we could, uh, here's a whole other sermon. That word comes up quite a bit in this, in this chapter. God is deeply concerned with justice and he wants his people to be deeply concerned with justice the same way he is. And 
if we are living faithfully for him, the justice of God will shine bright as the noonday sun when the sun's the brightest is the imagery here. Being faithful to God has the ability and the power to impact your present situation. And God says, please live this way. Please do this. Will you do this? Will you live faithfully for me? That's the first set, to wait on the Lord, to turn from evil, and to commit our lives to God's will so that things can be better around us, so that there, are, there is hope for people, and they can say, wait, evil doesn't always win. The wicked aren't in complete control of everything. There's hope in the Lord. Now, the second set of commands to obey uh, start in verse, we'll just, since we're on this page, we'll go to, to verse 3. Uh, it says this, trust in the Lord and do good. There's that word to trust. And if you are trusting in God, then you are going to be compelled to do good because God is good and he does good. So if you trust in him, do good. And then it says this, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. There is a command to the people of God to dwell in the land well, what does this mean? Well, to dwell, of course, means to live, but the imagery here that we need to remind, or the illustration we need to remind ourselves of is the tree from Psalm 1. If you remember, it says the righteous person, the obedient, faithful servant of God is like a tree planted by the waters. And we talked about how that tree planted by the waters has a abundant source of life and food next to it so it can grow its roots deep and it can strengthen itself to stand against any storm that would come its way. And to dwell in the land bears this same imagery that we need to be growing our roots deep wherever we are. The Bible does say that Christians are pilgrims. The people of God are pilgrims in this world and we're just in one sense passing through. It's not our final destination. But that's not to say that we should not care about what's going on around us. That's not to say we should not be interested in what's going, around, uh, going on around us. And that's not to say that we should not be involved in what's going around, on around us. What it means is that where we end up is already set so we can do better where we are now. We can be faithful where we are now because we don't have to worry about what's coming next. And Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness is another indication that we're kind of talking about this plant imagery here. To feed on his faithfulness is similar to being planted by the water. If your roots are feeding on the faithfulness of God, you can grow strong. You can live or dwell well in the place you find yourself. If you look back at verse 2 at the end, or at the, yeah, verse 2, it's, it's describing the wicked, and there's kind of a comparison here, and Here's how I know we're talking about plants. The wicked, in verse 2, shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the herb. The wicked are, are compared to plants whose roots are shallow or weak or not rooted at all. They're plants that are undesirable, that you want to get rid of, that would never last. And to feed on the faithfulness of God is the opposite of what a wicked plant would look like because it would grow strong 
with the correct nutrients it needs. So we are to dwell. Uh, Later in verse 27, it says that as well, right? Depart from evil and do good. We read that. And dwell forevermore. That eternal picture that we're waiting for, that final salvation and final victory. I said we're... um, the obedience we, the faithfulness we practice now can be investments in the future. To dwell forevermore, I think, indicates that. The roots you develop now in your life where you are, in your surroundings, are, can be carried over to the next life, can be carried over to eternity. Isn't it interesting that God asks his people to develop their roots while sin and wickedness And the brokenness of the curse has its hold on this world. What better way to grow our roots deep now? So when later, when there is no more suffering, when goodness and righteousness reign in the rule of the day and is all you can find, what kind of trees will be then? And we can simply exist in the beauty of the Lord and his salvation So grow your roots, grow them strong. In Jeremiah 29, I think it also kind of ties into this picture. Uh, So if you grow your roots and you grow them strong, you're also to be, as a faithful servant of God, you're supposed to be interested in making the ecosystem around you better. You're supposed to be making the soil better for other trees to grow in. You're supposed to be making things better for other plants to thrive in. I want to read to you really quick what God says in Jeremiah 29 to the people of Israel. So this is where he is telling the people of Israel, here's what I want you to do when you find yourself in Babylon for 70 years. For 70 years, here's what you do in a land that is absolutely hostile to the words of the Lord. It says this, To the faithful people of God, they will do this. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. God says, wherever I have you, Wherever you find yourself, if you're a faithful servant of God, you are to be concerned deeply with the community around you, with the people around you, with the life that's going on around you. Following God can become so personal and intimate to our own lives that we are so focused on our own selves and what we need to do for God that we can forget about the world around us. And I think the Lord wants strong, faithful trees to help bring the kingdom of God to dry desert lands. So something to consider as we obey the Lord from Psalm 37 is how we can make the garden around us a better place, a place that is more like Christ than it was before. Now, I have have, uh, grouped Another command with dwell, because I think it goes so well together and it's kind of hard to do at times, especially when it seems like evil and wicked are in control of all things. So after, as we dwell, as we learn how to live in the environment we're in and we feed on the faithfulness of God and, 
and use him and his resources to grow our lives, we are also supposed to delight. We are supposed to delight in this life that we live. Not supposed to just live a passive life hoping that we're getting strong enough to deal with whatever comes our way, but we're supposed to have one of extreme satisfaction and happiness in the Lord, both now and forever. There's going to be a day when that's going to be the easiest thing. But we don't live in a time when it's easy always to delight in our relationship with God, yet and in our surroundings, yet we are supposed to do that. In verse 4, it says, right after it says dwell in the land, it says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your hearts. That doesn't mean he's going to grant every wish. What that's talking about is the petitions that you have and the needs that you have. And when you are walking with the Lord and your heart is being made more and more like Jesus' heart, then you're going to want more and more things that will honor God, and God will give you those. And what delight that brings when God answers prayer, when God opens doors, when God makes things possible that seemed impossible. It's kind of a cycle or a circle, and they both feed into each other, delighting and being heard by the Lord. In verse 11, it also talks about delight. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and they shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. How happy would you be if you woke up tomorrow and you knew God was in complete control and you could see it everywhere? And suffering was gone and evil was gone and everybody was following Jesus the way they should. And we didn't have to worry about sin any longer. Well, that day is coming so there's coming a day when we will delight, but God says, delight now in me. Knowing what's going to happen in the end can bring us that extreme satisfaction and happiness we so desperately need, especially in times of suffering and when things are at their darkest. These are, uh, these are commands to obey, and there are promises associated with them, and I hope you are making notes of those and and writing those down because God gives good reason why you can experience happiness in this life now. And he wants you to do it. And remember, this is David's life experiences. And if you know much about David's life, you know he went through times of extreme anguish. But he went through times of extreme happiness and delight as well. And he would say, if you follow God faithfully, you will be happy. And I'm okay saying that. I'm okay saying that. All right. The final set of commands. And I saved these for last because they just felt like they really were important for today. For the time we find ourselves in. Uh, the first thing is a command to not do something. And it is the command to not fret because... Of the workers of evil. You'll find this word fret in the New King James and in several other translations. Maybe you have a different word, but in verses 1, in verse 7, and verse 8, three times David says, Do not fret because of evildoers. 
Do not fret because of the wicked who prospers in his way, because of those who accomplish wicked schemes. Don't fret and cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret in verse 8. What does that mean? We don't normally say that maybe today as much, but to fret is to be consumed with frenzied anger, to burn with rage. Well, that makes sense. God says, don't be angry. But here's what's interesting. He says, don't be angry when evil wins. Don't be angry that the wicked are accomplishing their goals. Don't be, wicked, don't be angry. Don't, be, don't, be, don't burn with rage, let me say it that way. Don't let your anger consume you when it seems like nothing is going right. I don't know about you, but it feels like that's a lot of people's feelings these days. And if David said it, then I guess he would have said the same thing that in his day and age, there must have been people who felt the same way. Why should we not burn with rage when it looks like evil is winning, evil is in control, and evil has the final say on everything? In verse 8 it says, it only causes harm. To be consumed with anger, what you might call righteous anger, what we as the faithful servants of God might say, well, shouldn't we be upset about what's going on? Well, he doesn't say don't be upset about what's going on. He says don't let your, that anger, even for right reasons, consume you because it causes harm. It causes harm to you and it causes harm to those around you. And if we are supposed to be dwelling and if we are supposed to be making the things around us better, then being consumed with anger, even over the hold of sin on this earth, is not helpful. It's our natural reaction to the observations of this world. But God is saying, and David's saying, don't let that consume you. Why? Well, if you know what is going to be the end of the story, then you don't have to resort to anger. You don't have to resort to that because God wins, because good triumphs, and because there is nothing happening in this world today that God is not in complete control of and God is not intimately working through. And I believe that 100%. I believe the Bible says that. So though evil seems to be in control, though bad things keep happening, and though things never seem to be getting better, I know this truth, that one day things will be right. And that the justice of God will be served to all. And the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ will cover me when it's time to have account for the evil that I've done. So take hope. Take heart. Don't let those things consume you. Don't let those things be true about your Christian life. Let these other things be true about, that you're waiting, that you're turning from evil, that you're committing your life to God's will, that you're dwelling where you are and you're delighting in the Lord. 
don't fret. And then the last command, which I think is the answer to the temptation to burn with rage at what we see, is found in verse 7. And that is to rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Don't fret because of the wicked who prospers or whose schemes come to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Here's why you don't have to worry, and here's why you can rest. Because the evildoers shall be cut off. God is working. God promises good to those who are faithful and love him. And he says it will be accomplished in his time. And I think he's also made clear, and David has done, gone to, through great lengths to point out, that even though there's a future hope and a future rest and a future peace that is everlasting and coming, we can still experience eternity in flashes and in glimpses now through our faithful obedience, the community of God, the body of Christ, the church, whatever you want to call it, can help bring the kingdom of God to realization in our world today. And until the final salvation, until the final deliverance, until the final work, evil will seem to win. The wicked will seem to to prosper, but if you know the end of the story, you know it's all for nothing. So, how would David conclude his counseling session from Psalm 37? I think he would say these things. I think he would say, obey the commands that have been given, that he has personally experienced, or why would he even be talking about them? Obey those commands to thrive. That's why this is called words to thrive by. It was originally called words to live by, but God wants you to do more than live in the place he has put you. He wants you to thrive. Obey these commands to thrive in the time and the place that you live. There's, it's no accident you are where you are and you see what you see. It's no accident. And God has a purpose for it. And then he says these, trust these three promises that I'm going to read really quick. Trust these three promises. In case you're not convinced whether or not obeying the Lord in these seven ways will bring good to this world and will bring hope and revival to your soul. In case you haven't uh, believed that yet, let me read to you three more things that David says that are purely promises. There's no obedience um, tied to it. These are just paragraphs of promises. In verse he says this, the steps of a good man, now good, we talked about good already, right? But good is faithful to the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and God delights, capital He there, God delights in his way. God's in control of your life and God delights in your faithful service. Take that in for a second. It says this in verse 24, Though the faithful servant fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. If you are found in Christ, you can never be utterly 
cast down. You will never be cut off the way that the wicked will be. And though the wicked slay the righteous or slay you, you will live because of the Lord's strength and his power. That is a pure promise, in fact. Verse 18 is another promise. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. In the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. And then in verse 20, he has a promise for the wicked, for the evildoers, for the enemies of God and his people. The wicked shall perish. The enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. The Lord will bring justice and peace to his people. It will be an eternal justice and peace that they will enjoy. We will enjoy. You will enjoy for eternity. Until that day comes, serve him faithfully now as a foretaste of what's to come for yourself and as a way to share with others around them what they could experience if they come to saving knowledge of Jesus. And do not fret that evil is so prevalent and so powerful today because it's only for a moment that the Lord has determined and one day they will be no more. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time and this opportunity of looking at your word. Thank you for Psalm 37 and David's ability to write this after his experiences through his life. I pray, Father, wherever we are in our walk, our journey with you, Lord, if we've experienced similar things or not, we would put our trust in your promises and we would obey your commands faithfully so that we can dwell and we can delight. We don't have to be anxious and overcome with worry and fear, but we can be confident in your strength. We can be more like Jesus than we ever were before. And we can reflect that out to a world that needs you, Father. You give us what we need to thrive in this world, and I pray we would take these things to heart. In your name, amen.